first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Everybody, thank you so much for joining me for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. This is a very special edition. I am one of your hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And Bruce is not joining us today. This is a special episode that we are dropping because I had the opportunity to interview an infectious disease microbiologist, Dr. Maria Batazzi, and a sports medicine epidemiologist, Dr. Zachary Benny. Dr. Benny has obviously training in epidemics, and so things that are becoming widespread medical concerns that communities need to deal with. And Dr. Batazzi is a researcher who is working amongst the communities and within the communities of people who are trying to find solutions and keeping up with treatments and communicating information across the medical community around the COVID-19 pandemic. So, We are going to talk about how this uh, situation is going to affect the NFL and affect the the, the NFL season specifically. There's a lot in this interview between these two people about timelines and about when we can expect some things to change. The shelter-in-place orders that a lot of us are dealing with, the testing difficulties that we're dealing with, what does the rebuild look like when we come out of this, and how far into 2020 is this going to affect our calendar. Uh, I think it's very, very enlightening and interesting stuff. Um, I hope that it makes a difference for you and helps you understand our current situation and calibrate what your expectations are moving forward. It certainly did that for me. So without further ado, we're going to play one ad right now so that I do not have to play any ads during the interview. And then when we come back, it will be myself with Dr. Maria Batazzi and Dr. Zach Binney. Thanks so much for joining us. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Nick and Nolan Show, a special episode where we have two very special guests with us, uh, Dr. Batazzi and Dr. Binney. Uh, Dr. Batazzi comes to us through the AAAS, which is the American Association of Advancement of Science, specifically the Leshner Leadership Institute. And I believe there is a, a specific cohort that you're a part of, Dr. Batazzi, for infectious diseases. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Thank you so much for the invitation. 
Yeah, not a problem at all. Thank you for joining us. And also joining us is Dr. Zach Binney. Dr. Binney, you are an epidemiologist, but you focus uh, primarily in your day-to-day work on sports injuries. Is that correct? That's right. I'm a sports injury epidemiologist affiliated with Emory University here in Atlanta. And also, Dr. Batazzi has already told us off the air that she is not a huge football fan, so she doesn't come in with any particular baggage one way or another. But you, Dr. Benny, admitted to being a Dolphins fan. Fins up, baby. Yeah. So I, I will say, uh, Brian Flores, I would like to pick your brain real quick. Are you guys a fan of him? Is he, is he somebody that's scratching the itch? You got, you've gone through, after leaving Adam Gase territory, you know, Brian Flores has to be a pretty good breath of fresh air. Uh, I'm an enormous fan of what I saw Coach, Coach Flores uh, accomplish in 2019, and I've, I haven't been uh, this excited for a Dolphins coach going forward in some time. But y'all got a pretty good team up there in Buffalo, too. Maybe we can finish one and two in the division th- this year. Who knows? I think that with the with the exit of Tom Brady, we're definitely in a position where perhaps the Buffalo Miami rivalry of decades ago is going to be uh, refreshed. So we can only hope if we get to a point where you know it's uh, going to be safe for us to be playing football games this season, we could see that, and that's. That's what we want to talk about today primarily is how the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is affecting the sports world. So I guess just to open up and start, and I'll I'll hand it over to you, Dr. Batazzi, if you would. I mean, a lot of us are experiencing the coronavirus in our own way. So, you know, I live in a state where the governor has us under a stay-at-home order. You know, there are other states where, to my knowledge, they haven't even closed schools yet. And so we have people around the country who are living in all sorts of different, you know, precautions, whether they are voluntary or mandated. Can you give us maybe a big picture perspective, at least from your opinion, where we are with the coronavirus and what it's doing in America right now that has caused, you know, all of this uh, attention and activity on the on the part of citizens and sports teams and everyone. Uh, certainly, but I would be demised if I just don't highlight that I do live in Texas and therefore I do know about the Texans, even though yeah. I'm not an NFL fan or know yeah. about it. But beware, right? Because I know that uh, uh, we have a very strong uh, team and. Uh, we're very proud of the Texans, certainly here in, uh, not only in Texas, but certainly in Houston. So that's my little, uh, certainly, uh, <laughs> information that I would like to make sure that, you know, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I'm in, a, in, I'm in a good place here with regards to football. <laughs> yeah, well, we know that all too personally, because actually the Houston Texans and our team, the Buffalo Bills, played in the playoffs this year, and you guys uh, beat us uh, in Houston. So, man, I, we're getting beat on all sides here. So hopefully we can transition out of this talk and get into the, <laughs> get into the unfortunately, in this circumstance, it seems like the virus talk might actually give Bills fans a little bit of relief. So yes, uh, go ahead, absolutely. bring us up to speed on where we stand, Dr. Batazzi. Sure, and I think you, you actually raised a, a really good question, and I think that's what probably has been the, the hardest thing uh, that is uh, um, difficult to understand why in some places we have such a much more drastic, uh, I guess, containment or even shelter in place. In fact, here in Houston, we are in a shelter in place right now. Um, and, and I think it's um, trying to, uh, I think we've discussed this with Dr. Bini before, this whole concept of trying to uh, lower the curve uh, and make sure that we can really uh, reduce the infectivity of this virus such that we can um, break that more and more and more people are getting infected. And, and again, you know, the decisions of why some um, states or even cities um, have much more strict, um, I guess, regulations or or, or um, uh, activities that are happening. It, it's really because, um, I guess, they're starting to see that this curve is actually starting to peak. And, and in fact, maybe that's one of the challenges of, you know, has it been a mistake to wait until you start a peak rise when you start putting these very strict uh, social distancing measures? Uh, should have we been done them uh, way from the beginning, even when we uh, were seeing uh, not a lot of um, infected people in, 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 in the U.S. territory? It is, to be quite honest, is a very difficult uh, question and answer. The bottom line ultimately is uh, we the solution will really have to be a combination of strategies, but 
but people have to understand this is serious now. I think uh, we've heard that U.S. has now probably the highest number of infected population, as well as we are pretty much ramping up the number of deaths, which is very sad. And therefore, we have to be serious with this concept of maintaining as much as possible this physical distancing because it's the only way that we're going to really reduce it. So I encourage that indeed those places that may still don't have such um, strong, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, uh, shelter in place uh, 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 things that maybe they should just consider and doing it even uh, uh, on an individual basis. And I don't know, Doctor Bean, if you want to add to that. Yeah, just to just to piggyback on that. I mean, so theoretically, in theory you could have a situation where it makes sense to have shelter in place orders in some locations and no shelter in place orders in other locations. And you would have those orders in locations where there is wide based person to person spread in the community. The problem is uh, due to our complete and utter uh, insufficient testing uh, ability to test who is sick and who is not, we have no idea where the virus is in this country in states, within cities, within counties. We just don't know. And so because of that lack of knowledge, the only really smart public health action to take is to have as broad-based social distancing measures and uh, and shelter-in-place measures as we can muster. So the smart thing right now, until we can get a handle on where the virus is and where it isn't, is to uh, encourage as many people in the country to shelter in place as possible. Okay. So if we if part of this is and the turmoil that the medical community is going through and you know citizens by you know society at large is going through is that we don't have the information about where the virus is and that is largely due to testing i i have seen uh, just through paying attention to the news and whatnot, that there are places in the country where they are getting thousands now of confirmed cases, which would assume, which would you know take thousands of tests. And then there are other communities that there are you know potentially similar numbers as far as what is in reality happening, but the confirmed cases are only in the hundreds. And you're hearing about people who have symptoms and aren't able to get a test and things like that. Is there any sort of realistic timeline for when we expect the testing abilities to be present across the country? Or is that something that we're still sort of scrambling to, you know, put our put our ducks in a row in order to execute that? So I, I'm just going to actually remind you of something else, though. You know, remember, right now, even though there is indeed this uh, challenge of who's getting tested and, and how many and, and, and even how much capacity we may have. Remember that also this virus is being transmitted by, by those who are non-asymptomatic, they are asymptomatic or meaning that they have no symptoms. So even if tomorrow we were to have the opportunity of testing everybody that shows up that says, I have a, a sore throat or that, you know, I started with a little fever, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily uh, re maybe mean that you have COVID-19. I think that what we're seeing more and more is the fact that the virus is really actually being transmitted very, very heavily by all those of us who maybe don't even know that actually have it because we don't have symptoms. And those, for us to then ramp up the fact that we would have to, to use diagnostics in absolutely everybody, right? Because you know, that's going to be much more difficult. So I, it's a challenge indeed that we have not enough uh, diagnostics to even diagnose those who even come up with a potential symptom, but the transmission actually doesn't happen only to those who have symptoms. And that's why, again, the more reason also for this shelter in place or uh, uh, physical distancing, because um, you don't really know who has it. And even if you were to have been diagnosed, you know, you're probably not going to be able to diagnose everybody. Is that correct, Dr. Bean? Oh, I would agree 100%. And so can we talk for a minute, Nick, about why we're asking people to socially distance, if that's all right? Yeah, that's fine. You know, I, I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, why do I have to stay at home? And the reason is because, just like Dr. Batazzi said, uh, 
you know, we don't know who has the virus. We don't even have enough tests to test the people who are symptomatic. And we know uh, that you can transmit the virus even if you don't have symptoms, even if you're not coughing and feverish uh, and stuff like that. So what we need to do is basically break the chain of transmission because with a new virus where nobody is immune to it and it can hop into and infect basically anyone, you tend to get something called uh, exponential growth. And what exponential growth basically means is that you can get a lot of cases very, very quickly. Uh, on average, we our best guess is that somebody with COVID-19 can spread it to about two to three other people. Let's just say it's three other people. If you're going out and uh, you know, if you're going out and meeting with a lot of people, you might spread the virus to three other people. Whereas if you stay home, you're probably not going to spread it to as many people. And the reason that getting uh, that getting that number of people that you spread it to down is really important is because if I spread it to three people, those three people spread it to three other people each, and then those nine people spread it to three more. And after just 10 jumps like that, suddenly that's 59,000 people with the virus. Whereas if we ask you to stay home, and now maybe on average, you only uh, give it to maybe one and a half people, uh, you'll only end up after 10 of those generations, you'll only end up infecting about 15 people. You'll only end up with about 15 people with the virus. 15 versus 59,000 from a single case uh, over the same time period. That's an enormous difference. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to break those chains of transmission. And the way that we do that is by reducing the number of people that you come into contact with. Because the fewer people you come into contact with, the fewer people you, uh, whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, if you're a carrier, it's you're going to transmit the virus to fewer people. So can I ask for some, can we dig into that a little bit? So let's say hypothetically that I am a person who uh, has the virus. And so we want to have me, and even if I'm, whether I'm asymptomatic or I'm symptomatic either way. So I shelter in place and I limit my, my contacts with people in order to not spread it. How long does a person like me need to isolate myself before I'm no longer a danger to the others that I would be around? So as far as I understand, uh, the virus is infectious between a period, I believe, of you know, 7 to 14 days, or at least, if anything, that's the period that we know that if you're going to develop any symptoms, you would develop them, right? So for example, the directives that we're getting, um, as an example, for instance, we even have a, you cannot leave Houston uh, in an 150-mile radius, for instance. And if I were to go and visit or do something, uh, I don't know, in Austin or, or, or San Antonio, if I come back, my university uh, puts me in a 14-day quarantine. So that's kind of like the Assuming that, you know, the moment that you were in contact with that virus, you know, it, it, they, they're, they're saying that you need around 14 days for you to be able to either show that you have any symptoms. And then they're making this assumption that indeed, if you didn't get any symptoms by 14 days, most likely you didn't have it and therefore you, you are not going to transmit it. I, I, I would agree that, you know, there's not 100% assurance, but um, unless you get tested, of course, um, but that's more or less what, you know, people are, you know, doing right now. Uh, I don't know in your experience, Dr. Bini, where you are, is that the same case? Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, if you are tested positive, hopefully you will be spoken to by a physician or someone from your local public health department. And please obey however long they say uh, for you to stay at home. Please just stay at home uh, that amount of time. Uh, because the 7 to 14 days is uh, is to make sure that you don't develop symptoms. That doesn't mean you couldn't have been an asymptomatic carrier. Like you could have had the infection, never shown symptoms. But then at the end of 14 days, we're kind of hoping, well, you know, if your infection was never severe enough to even give you symptoms, uh, it should be, you should be in the clear by now. But if you develop symptoms, that period is presumably going to be a little bit longer. And there's where you need to talk to your your doctors and your local public health department and trust whatever they say. Okay. Okay. That, I think that's helpful. So one thing that I think has been um, a big point of 
contention and conversation when people are talking about flattening the curve, right? So, so present my understanding of flattening the curve, and then either of you are are welcome to jump in and correct me or or um, give me a pat on the back if I get it right. But the understanding is that if everybody gets the virus at um, a short in a short period of time, then it's sort of going to be like whenever everybody bought all the toilet paper, and you could you people who really actually needed toilet paper because they were out, they go to the store and they can't get it. So people, you know, although um, many people may get the virus, and very few may need life life sustaining ICU treatments like ventilators there will be some who will. And when they need it, if everyone else is uh, also using the ventilators at that time, we we will not have enough. And that could be a very, very dangerous position for people in that circumstance. And if we flatten the curve, so to speak, that will allow it so that the ventilators are available for those who uh, may develop symptoms so severe that they would need them. Am I on the right track with uh, understanding our motivations behind this flatten the curve campaign? That's exactly right. So first of all, here's a, a virtual pat on the back. And then let me give you a uh, maybe a football metaphor that might help. Uh, who would you say your listeners, who's their favorite Bills receiver of all time? Of all time, it would yeah. probably be Andre Reed. All right. All right. So Andre Reed. Andre Reed's out on your practice field up there in Buffalo, okay? And he's facing off against a jugs machine. And there's, uh, who's somebody you hate? Let's go with Dan Marino. All right, there's Dan Marino next to the jugs machine. And uh, he's got a bucket of 100 balls. All right, Andre Reed is the U.S. healthcare system. He's trying to save people's lives by catching the balls that Dan Marino is going to uh, put in the jugs machine and fire at him, okay? Now, Andre Reed, great receiver. One of the greatest of all time. Right, our U.S. healthcare system very strong. The problem is we've only got so many hospital beds, we've only got so many ICU beds, we've only got so many ventilators, we've only got so many staff to operate the ventilators and care for patients. In that same way, Andre Reed's only got two hands, right? So Dan Marino is the virus, and he's infecting people, and the people are the footballs, and he's putting those footballs in the jugs machine. He's firing them at Andre Reed. If he fires, say, one every five seconds, right, sort of fire, five, four, three, two, one, fire, five, four, three, two, one, Andre Reed's going to be able to catch most of those balls, right? Whereas if Marino instead just fires them as fast as he can, uh, Reed, as good as he is, is only going to catch a few of them. And every one of those balls that makes it by him is a whole lot of people who don't have uh, the, the resources that they need to be treated, and so they die when if we had fired those balls slower, uh, Reed could have caught them. And in this metaphor, the U.S. healthcare system could have treated them and saved their lives. So we need to lengthen out that amount of time at which uh, the balls are being fired at Reed. That's what flattening the curve means, giving Reed a chance with just his two hands to catch all of the balls uh, that he's eventually going to have to catch. And if he doesn't, uh, there's a lot of danger with the U.S. healthcare system being completely overwhelmed. And when Andre Reed is overwhelmed, that's where really most of the deaths uh, will come, not even necessarily from the disease killing people under any circumstances, but from killing them under the specific circumstances of just not having enough ventilators or ICU beds or skilled uh, doctors and respiratory therapists and, and nurses and such. Okay, makes sense. So- if you know, one of the things I think was um, enlightening that I learned is that it's not only that we have the, this finite number of uh, beds and ICU beds and ventilators, it is the duration which it seems people who do develop severe symptoms and struggle with the coronavirus, they need those things for extended periods of time. I believe that uh, Governor Cuomo from New York had a press conference recently where he disclosed that people will be on a ventilator anywhere from 11 to 21 days when dealing with the coronavirus, whereas most other circumstances might be three to four days. And that some of the people that are in the New York uh, health system right now, which is you know one of the hotspots for the virus in the US, they have been on the, the ventilator for 30 days. So is there... Um, 
you know, this is a new disease, and I know that we don't know everything about it. But Dr. Batazzi, as you know, complex or not so complex as you want to get with it, why is it that this particular virus is so, I, I guess, why it ranges so much between person to person as to how difficult or how uh, severe their symptoms develop? And why, in general, is this a virus that is, you know, why, why is it making people sick as opposed to maybe other viruses that come about and they just they don't ever sustain themselves amongst the human population, whereas this one has has become a global pandemic? Yes, and that is a, a very, very good question, right? Because, you know, you have a whole spectrum of different stages even and, and seriousness of, of the disease, right? To the point where you have those who have indeed what is called a severe respiratory syndrome, which is when you get to the point where the person has to be not only maybe on a ventilator, but, you know, uh, eventually leads to death. Um, uh, then, you, of course, you have those that indeed may uh, have to even enter into the intensive care unit, but, you know, have the luck enough that, you know, they, they can certainly get out and, and, and survive. Then you have those who uh, have to get hospitalized, but maybe never really have to enter the intensive care unit and, 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 and expand to the point where, again, you have to use the ventilator. And then there's those who indeed get sick uh, uh, and, and at, at different levels of sickness, but you maybe you can control it by, you know, just um, staying in your house. And then indeed, there's those who never actually possibly even get sick and they stay asymptomatic. And so we scientists really still do not know um, but what we do know, however, of course, is if you have something like a pre-existing condition that, you know, clearly have you either with a weakest, uh, weakened immune response because you may have a, another disease or, you know, clearly they've, they've shown that if you have high blood pressure or if you have uh, certainly, if you're an elder person, because as you know, as we as we grow old, unfortunately, our, our, our immune system in general also uh, deteriorates. But most likely, also older people have all these other pre existing conditions, right? Um, it's also been shown that if if you already are on certain level of medications, which means that you're either controlling your blood pressure or you're even some of these um, um, heart uh, uh, medicines. Uh, and then you even go down all the way to the question that everybody's asking now is what's happening with the pediatric population? I mean, we're actually at some level, we're very lucky that, you know, we're, we're not seeing that they're being afflicted as, as heavy as the extreme, you know, older uh, populations. So a lot of questions. We do, we do not know. That's why we have an epidemiologist. And even though uh, Dr. Bin is not, is not a uh, um, infectious disease epidemiologist, but that's exactly what they're trying to see. I mean, is it, um, is it the, the load of virus that somebody is um, infected with? Does that make, make any difference if you get a small load versus somebody that gets a, a big load or, or a repeated load? Or um, where exactly in in your lungs uh, really is this virus going uh, to impact? Because as you know, in respiratory diseases, you have upper respiratory, lower respiratory, and I think this virus really goes deep into your um, lung cells that clearly eventually induce this very severe um, respiratory syndromes. I mean, we've actually see, seen this with the prior uh, outbreaks with SARS and MERS. And then uh, again, the same question is, is like why a SARS in 2003 had a, a very high rate of death, but it was very easily contained, and therefore there were not a lot of um, uh, expanded infection. Um, and so I, there's a lot of questions. Uh, we can only predict, you know, right now, for instance, they're predicting that they think that around 20 to 30% of those who get infected lead to become, you know, uh, symptomatic. And then again, you know, what makes you be the unlucky person who goes all the way to uh, to death and versus others? No. And so there's a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, factors uh, that really are impacting this uh, solution or or ish or impact, and we we really don't know. So, um, Dr. Binney, any any words of wisdom here? Uh, I don't know about wisdom, but I will uh, just 
echo a couple things that you said and add a couple more of my own, which would be uh, you are absolutely right that people with various pre-existing conditions, uh, lung and heart issues, uh, older folks are clearly at higher risk of really bad outcomes from this disease. But, um, you know, young people are not immune. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my uh, mid-30s. Uh, healthy, no pre-existing condition. So I'm in that group that tends to feel a little bit invincible, maybe not as much as I did at 21, but, uh, you know, still. Uh, and so even if you have a 99.9% chance of surviving, if you get this disease, you know, we have a tendency to round that up to 100% in our heads. And I want to give you just a little hypothetical here to make you think about how much danger you really are taking on if you get this disease. Let's say I walk you down to the sideline of Ralph Wilson Stadium, and I say, uh, you have to run straight across the field, anywhere you want from goal line to goal line, but three inches of the field is covered in landmines. How much money would I have to pay you to make that run? Because that's that 0.1% risk that you're taking on. So think about how much money I'd have to pay you to make that run. And then compare that to the amount of money that you would put on the ability to say, go out to a bar or go out to a restaurant or go visit friends and have a party or something like that. And think about the risk that you're really taking on. And that's just for you. That's just if you're thinking, you know, completely, I don't care about anybody else. I really just worry about myself because the people that we're really trying to protect are the uh, older folks, immunocompromised folks, those with existing heart and lung uh, issues. We're trying to protect them because if we go out there and we get that disease, now suddenly we become a vector. We become a way to get them sick. We become a way to get my dad sick. You know, I just had this, uh, I just had this conversation with him. Uh, he's uh, 65 and, you know, I sat down with him and I had the conversation. I said, you know, you, I would really prefer if you did not leave the house anymore at all right now uh, as the epidemic is spiking because we're to the point where doctors may very soon be having to make decisions about who does and does not get a ventilator. And my dad at 65 is not going to be one of those people who gets one. Okay. I could be because I'm young enough and I'm healthy enough, but he won't be. So, you know, there are real risks that we're trying, we're trying to uh, prevent doctors from having to make these unimaginable wartime gut-wrenching choices uh, we're trying to prevent our parents and our grandparents from suffering this fate. And, and it's on us. It's on all of us. It's on Zoomers, millennials, Gen Xers, boomers. It's on everybody to get together and, and stay at home as much as we can and, and cut the possibility of disease spread. One of the things that I have heard from I'm in the state of Ohio, so one of the things I've heard from my governor and from the uh, the health director here uh, is that we won't know if the uh, shelter-in-place orders, if the precautions that are being implemented and that we are taking, we won't know if they have worked or if they have made an impact for insert number of days. You know, I've heard 12, I've heard 15, I've heard 10, I've heard 21. Is um, is there is can somebody explain why we need that time frame? Um, and you know, if there is any clarity, that was some days ago that I heard that comment. If there is any clarity about um, if we expect to have a handle on where we're headed and where we are in the curve in you know sometime in the near future. You know, indeed, it is a very uh, interesting question, right? And I think the only thing I can tell you is that. Probably we need to observe what is also occurring in the other regions of the world, right? So we've already seen uh, with uh, the, 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 I guess, what was setting place in, in, in Wuhan and certainly in other areas of China and, and, and how is, how, what's the situation there now and how long it took them, considering, of course, it was like the first the first location and therefore, and, and certainly the, the types of activities they did may even be in some level more aggressive and in some, in some things maybe less. Of course, there was, we were not as advanced in diagnostics. So again, things change constantly, right? Then we have seen the absolute, you know, uh, um, amazing, uh, very sad uh, experience that Europe is having and, you know, especially Italy, 
uh, and even Spain or, or even now in the UK? And, you know, for instance, are we seeing what, is it, is it getting any better? You know, how quickly are we seeing this flattening of the curve? You know, are we learning anything from, from them? Uh, clearly, it, it may, we may not have learned fast enough here in the U.S. And unfortunately, we have uh, some very serious uh, cities and, and, and even states that are being hard hit. Um, and so we all have to pay attention to that. I am also very um, worried about uh, the rest of the Americas. Uh, you know, what is going to happen, you know, down in, in Central and South America that still it seems that they're not really peaked yet. Uh, we are probably seeing our peak here in the U.S. in, in this next week or so, I believe. And Dr. Bini can then confirm if if, if I'm, I'm, I'm predicting something almost... Uh, predictable, I guess. Um, but um, I think that's that's where we were taking our cues because nobody really knows. And, you know, maybe uh, it will work better with us because we have different types of interventions and we, we our culture is different. The way we interact is also differently. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to even say, you know, certainly a New York city is not a, is not a Houston. You know, we, we, we have very different densities and, and way people even just walk around. I mean, Houston with, because it's hot, you know, people tend not to be uh, outside as much, but we are there for inside in buildings. Again, um, it's, um, and maybe that's just a long way of telling you that I really do not know, but I do hope that we can see some clarity uh, in the next week or two for sure. Yeah, and specifically on the why we have to wait uh, issue, um, you know, I know we as Americans uh, in particular, we love instant gratification, right? But this isn't going to be like you've got a headache, you take an Advil and half an hour later it's gone right? This isn't what we're talking about. The reason that it takes, you know, a couple of weeks to figure out if something, if social distancing and shelter in place orders have worked or not is, think about it this way. Think about if I right now uh, stopped everybody. I waved a magic wand and I put like a bubble over everybody's residence and kept them where they were right now. Because of the incubation period of the virus, because you can get infected with it and then not actually really know you're sick with it for a, up to a couple of weeks, we're still going to be getting infections showing up over the next two weeks. All of those happened before we ever put these orders in place, okay? So it takes time to let those, uh, you know, to let those infections reveal themselves and then resolve. And then you then you might start to see the curve bending, uh, so to speak. You may see the number of new cases start to uh, flatten out uh, or even start to drop. The danger is that if you then re-release people, if you remove the social distancing measures, it could just all start back up again. And we could start spreading the virus again. And, you know, a month or two later, we'd just be right back where we are now. Um so, you know, that's that's a real danger. And the way that you combat that, I can get into more details on my thoughts on that if you want. But, um, you know, there are there are ways to combat that. And there's a process. We're not we're not trying to get stuck in an infinite loop, nor are we trying to shut uh, everybody, you know, do social distancing for like a year or year and a half. I don't think a lot of people would really stand for that. And so we need to find a path that's in the middle. And, and if you want, I can talk a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that you know I, I asked that question, and obviously you know Dr. Batazzi is talking about you know, trying to forecast and being concerned about what's going to happen in in the Americas, whatever the virus gets down there and begins spreading, and in other parts of the world. And it's you know it sounds awfully trivial for us to try and talk about how this could affect sports. But it, for the sake of the what people typically are listening to me talk about, I, I will ask this question, uh, acknowledging its trivialness in, in compared to what we're dealing with. But you know, what's the what's the chance that this thing is still hanging around? Um, you know, 
far into this year, and not only whenever sports happen, but whenever we have a major presidential election. I mean, there are there are many things that are on the calendar that feel far away. But, you know, hearing you talk about the timing and, and the discipline which it will take for this thing to die out so that we don't wind up in a repetitive in a repetitive cycle, you know, what does that look like? And what are the chances that that we, um, you know, that that it's going to affect these things that feel very far off right now, like the football season? Yeah. All right. So huddle up, folks. Here's the game plan. All right. I'm going to lay it out. And actually, I'm going to use another analogy. Uh, I'm going to call it the process. I think it actually has a lot of uh, a lot of um, similarities with that. Right now, we're in the teardown. We're in the bad part of the process, okay, where we have to be very, very strict and make some folks have a bad time and uh, restrict the economy a little bit. Uh, and we have to stay at home uh, and we have to do social distancing so that we can get the virus under control to a manageable number of new infections. Okay, because right now it's out there. God knows how many people actually have it, but it's totally beyond our containment and control. We can't do that anymore. So we have to stop its spread. Okay, once we've done that, the teardown, now we can start getting into the rebuild. And this is that middle path that I spoke about before. Okay, the rebuild is going to look hopefully like what South Korea and Singapore and Taiwan uh, are doing. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or what they're doing. We're talking about democracies in Asia that we are stealing these ideas from. And what the rebuild looks like is we aggressively test people. We test people who are sick and who are not sick. We test everybody. And we aggressively identify cases. When we identify a new case, we isolate them so they can't spread the virus to others. We do what, epidemiolo what epidemiologists call contact tracing, which means we find out who they've been in contact with. We let them know uh, that they may have been exposed to the virus, and we do something with them as well in order to stop them from spreading the virus. And then we can keep it down to a manageable number of cases, but we can only do that when we only have a few cases at a time. That's why we can't just do that now. You know, you might ask, well, why can't we just go straight to the rebuild? We can't go straight to the rebuild because it's just too many people to keep track of. It'd be like if you asked the Bills to play against a team that could put 50 guys on the field. You just couldn't cover everybody, right? So we can't do that. Then finally, uh, the end goal of the process is a championship, right? That's going to be the vaccine so that we can generate herd immunity. And what that means is that the virus just doesn't have enough places to go. It's like if you surround the quarterback with four uh, rushing linemen and linebackers, that quarterback's got nowhere to go. He's going to get sacked. That's what we're trying to do uh, to the virus. And that's the end goal. So that's what the process ends up looking like. If we can get to the point where we're in a manageable rebuild, where we have just a few cases popping up here and there, we can isolate them, we can trace the people they've been in contact with, and we can stop it from spreading. I think it's possible to have pro sports, including the NFL, come back. I am, but you know, I want to define what comeback means. I think it's a lot easier to have football games without spectators for example, because it's a huge difference, epidemiologically speaking, and from the perspective of a virus's ability to spread, it's totally different to have maybe 200, 250 people in a stadium. You know, I'm talking players, coaches, essential game day staff, medical staff, broadcast staff, versus 70,000 screaming fans. Those are just completely different uh, levels uh, at which we have the ability to control the virus. So I think if football is coming back, two things need to happen. One is we need to be really, really disciplined about social distancing right now so that we can get into the rebuild. And then it, it, it will probably need to happen um, without fans. But could we have NFL, uh, the NFL on TV in the fall? It, it's possible if we're good about what we need to do right now. Okay. Well, Dr. Batazzi, I know we're coming up at a point where you have a hard stop. Um, if there is anything else you'd like to share, uh, I welcome you to do so, whether it's about something we've spoken about or other otherwise. And then uh, Dr. Binney, if you have a few more minutes, uh, you and I can continue the conversation if you're willing, and then uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, in a few minutes. Yes. And I just want to say that I am absolutely um, very happy to join you all because this is really 
a very different um, media for me to speak to certainly, you know, those who listen to your podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to try to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on in sports, I promise, so that I can actually com- use the same analogies that Dr. Beanie does. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. So I appreciate and uh, have a good rest of the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Batazzi. Thank you so much, Dr. Batazzi. Your expertise is absolutely invaluable. Thank you. All right. Hit me. What you got? So, Dr. Benny, that comment that you made about we could have it in the fall, you know, I, I maybe it's because free agency just happened and there's been um, a very welcome respite where football fans have had a lot to talk about that is not coronavirus related uh, because it does, rightfully so, it has taken over a major part of our lives and our consciousness and all of that stuff. I don't know that um, people are talking very openly or very heavily at this point that the season could I mean as it stands right now the season being played is is unlikely and that we need to take positive steps in order for it to become likely I think people are talking about well you know the NFL draft which is right around the corner that's going to be impacted and that has to be done remotely and all that and people are hemming and hawing um, you know for this to be something where a person with your expertise is saying if you thinking that August September you know you're very optimistic this is going to be wrapped up with a bow on it. You may want to you may want to think again. Now I said that it's a possibility. I did not say uh, that I was optimistic that it's plausible. But this really all depends on what we're doing right now. Right now, I'm nervous that we're not doing enough. We're not uh, staying home as much as we should. We don't have a national shelter in place order. All of these things that are really really important. Uh, the NFL season is definitely in jeopardy. If we don't have a lid on this thing to the point where we can contain it to the degree like uh, areas like South Korea and Singapore are able to do right now, then no, we can't have several hundred people getting together for anything. Um, But I think that, you know, if we all pull together and we work really hard, I think it's possible that through rigorous testing, and I'm talking like you'd be testing NFL players probably every couple of days, you'd be testing every single person who would go into that stadium. Uh, the you know a few hours before they went in, uh, so that even if they somehow caught uh, COVID between that time and when they went in, they they may not uh, have gotten to the point where they're uh, super contagious yet. You know, it would be it would be a massive financial and logistical undertaking, even uh, if we get to the point where it's something that's plausible. So you know, I want I want to give people some hope because. You know, I, I think sometimes the message is, well, it's going to be 12 or 18 months to a vaccine. And, and that's right. It's probably going to be at least 18 months. So what are we going to do in the meantime? What's reasonable? And, and what I hope is reasonable is really, really aggressive testing of people so that we can slowly start to release people responsibly from uh, the shelter in place orders that uh, that are absolutely 100 percent necessary right now. It's going to be a risk. Uh, to do that. And we need to do it in concert with local and state public health officials, with national officials. We need people to be willing uh, to get tested for their own good and for the good of those around them. And uh, and if we can get to that point, um, then, then there's a possibility that we could have football in the fall. But it's going to take work on all our behalves uh, if that's something that you want to see. The testing issues that we've had, you know, again, I'm in I'm in Ohio and I'm in, I'm in a suburb of Cleveland, and and I remember some a week ago or a week or two ago that the Cleveland Clinic, um, you know, got some praise because they came up with a test that gave you a result that was in a significantly shorter timeline than what people were dealing with in the early days of the outbreak in the U.S., where it was taking the CDC two to three days to get a result, and the Cleveland Clinic developed a test that is, you know, gave you results in eight hours. Is there a standard, quote-unquote, test that, that, to your knowledge, and I know that Dr. Batazzi is not with us, and you may yield to her in some cases, but based to your knowledge, is there a test, a standard test that is now being used across the board, or are we sort of using a couple different versions of it? Right. So to my knowledge, everybody's using the same type of test right now, which is uh, something called... Uh, 
well, I, I won't get into the details because it's not probably of interest to your listeners, but you know, everybody's using the same type of test, but there are different kits, uh, different manufacturers, different labs uh, are processing the tests. And I, you know, I want to draw a distinction. You know, you said uh, it's a test that can be done more rapidly, and that's true, but the speed of the test is only one element in how fast you get your result. Uh, because it depends on how fast your sample is transferred to a lab that can actually analyze it. It depends on how many tests that lab is receiving and what its capacity to actually run those tests is. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into how fast you actually get a result back. And ramping up all of those, ramping up the number of tests, ramping up the speed with which the test can be run, and ramping up our capacity to run those tests, uh, any of those will help get results faster. Uh, and we are making some progress on that. We're definitely not uh, where we need to be yet. We're still not to the point where, you know, anybody who wants a test can get a test. Um, but we're, we're working on that. There's a lot of folks around the country, public sector, private sector, who are all working on that. And, uh, you know, I wish I could stare into my crystal ball and tell you this is when we're really going to be where we need to be. It, it could be a month or two. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of what, what we're looking at. But we're definitely not to the point where you should expect to, say, go to a drive-up test site and have your results in 45 minutes, even with the Cleveland Clinic test. That's that's not what, what we're able to do right now. Okay, understood. So, I mean, that, that, you know, gives us a little bit of clarity because if the rebuild is the start of getting back to normal, right? If right now, what we're all living with are these these different varied, uh, these different variances of a shelter in place in different communities and whatnot, right? If that is what we're dealing with and getting out of that stage and into more of what you described earlier as the rebuild, the key component to that was the ability to test and test everyone and react to the people they've interacted with and act upon that information quickly. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, that is not right around the corner be simply because we don't have the testing capacity and the ability to hand, even if the tests exist, the ability to process them and dis distribute the information in a timely fashion right now. Yeah. Uh, this is not happening by Easter. Uh, I'm really sorry to report that, but, uh, but it's just, I, I would be absolutely shocked uh, if we were able to get finally to where uh, we need to be by then. Again, we are making progress. This is not going to last forever, but it, it, it you know, it's probably going to extend uh, a little bit beyond that. And, uh, and we just need to be patient and wait until we're, we're at the point where we can, uh, where we can control things. And, you know, I, I, I bet some of your listeners right now are probably thinking, well, wouldn't it just be smart to kind of rip the Band-Aid off? Like, there's a way to get through this quickly, which is let everybody go, let the virus burn through and create herd immunity. This is what the UK uh, was thinking about doing uh, until they saw the numbers of dead people that we would have if we followed that path. So that's a way to rip the Band-Aid off, but it's going to result in well north of a million dead people in this country. And that to me is not an acceptable outcome. To put it in more concrete terms, think about um, the upper range of the CDC's estimate on the number of people that COVID-19 uh, could kill if we don't take uh, you know these, these social distancing steps. It's about 1.7 million people. Now I say 1.7 million people. You know, I don't know what you're imagining, but it's kind of hard to wrap your head around that many people. Imagine if uh, terrorists blew up an NFL stadium at capacity, if they blew up the Super Bowl and everybody there died. And then they did that 23 more times after that. That's 1.7 million people. Think about what you would be willing to do to prevent that. Think about what we would be willing to spend to prevent that. And think about if maybe that's something that, that would be worth doing uh, for the current pandemic. That That's what I would ask your listeners to think about. It's a very, I think that's very, very helpful um, illustration of the, the population that we're talking about. Um, and by the way, there's been some, there's been some confusion the last couple of days uh, with, you know, estimates for deaths that have been revised downward, uh, particularly in the UK. 
you know, people were really latching on to the high end estimate of an initial report of 510,000 people uh, who were going to die in the UK. And now uh, that same group out of Imperial College London is saying, well, it's going to be 20,000. Well, 510,000 and 20,000 were both in the original report. The 510,000 was if the UK essentially continued on as it was. The UK changed course. They did strict social distancing and shelter in place. That saved, that is projected to save nearly half a million lives. So both of these were always possibilities. The 510,000 number did its job. Its job was to communicate to decision makers what was going to happen if they did nothing. Uh, And now we're on a better path in the UK. And I sincerely hope uh, that they continue to stick to it because we can just save a a crazy amount of lives if if we're willing to do what what needs to be done. Okay, I've got two questions before we wrap up here, Dr. Bendy. Number one is, you know, social distancing takes its toll on people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are around, uh, typically you're around loved ones or people whom you, you know, you live in proximity with on the regular but you know you're that's uh, you're probably going to be around them an amount of time that you is not part of your routine up until now. Oh sure. And so there's there's some significant adjustment with that. Plus there's probably difficulty with workplaces. There could be severe financial difficulty for people, especially if this is going to drag on for an extended period of time that is you know beyond the current optimistic uh, things that sometimes we hear about with timelines. How can we stay well and mentally stable and all of that in this time? You know, as as an epidemiologist, I'm assuming that this is something. You know, the the consequences of what the, what society has to do in order to successfully combat the epidemic, um, you know, would be something you're familiar with. What can we? How can we best uh, survive or handle and stay happy, well, and all of that in this time? Absolutely. So I'll start by telling your listeners just a little bit about my personal experience, and and maybe that will help. Uh, I am a freelance consultant right now, so I mostly work from home. Uh, My wife actually works at uh, the CDC, and uh, they have issued a work from home order. So now uh, we're home together five days a week, and it's you know it's great. We're spending more time together, but for example, we're having to split uh, up our home office. Uh, so, you know, there are definitely challenges there. And I don't mean to say that this is going to be easy or that, you know, oh, geez, just stay at home and, and watch Netflix and play video games. You know, I, I get that. People are hurting. Some people, it's really hard uh, to give up a paycheck. That's why uh, we need things like the federal government to step in with uh, beefing up on employment insurance and uh, direct cash transfers. Uh, hopefully to people to tide them over. And we're starting to see some of that. We'll see uh, whether it's enough because, you know, the bill really just passed today. Uh, so we'll see what happens with all of that. Um, but we do need to be be cognizant of the effects on normal people. Uh, some things that I would uh, suggest are, um, you know, you can definitely go outside. You don't necessarily have to stay within your home. What, what we're asking you to do is stay away from other people. So if you want to go out with your kids, uh, I know my neighbors love to go into the park nearby uh, with their sons and fly a kite. Fantastic. All we're asking you to do is stay at least six feet away from everyone else. You can go out for a walk. You can go out for a run. You can walk your dog. You can go ride your bike. All of these things. Totally fine. Uh, Just try not to get within six feet of people for any appreciable length of time. So, you know, maybe that will help. Sunlight definitely helps with mental health. Exercise, the best stress reliever and general health intervention that we have. Uh, You know, you can't go play pickup basketball. You can't go play flag football. Can't go play soccer. But there's lots of stuff uh, that you can do. Uh, Just wash your hands when you get back and try not to touch your face uh, when you're out, especially if you touch any other uh, surfaces while you're out. Um, and you know, you can interact with people, uh, virtually, uh, that's completely safe. You can call, uh, loved ones, uh, maybe the, the grandmother that you haven't called in a while, something like that. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of things that we can do. And on the economic front, we just have to all pull together as a society, uh, you know, help our fellow neighbors. I know we've donated to quite a few GoFundMes and such for our uh, favorite restaurants to help the the waitresses and bartenders uh, that we love so much. Um, 
So there are, there are lots of things that we can do, but this is, you know, this is a big multifaceted problem. There's a mental health aspect. There's a, uh, an economic aspect and we need to, we need to tackle all of those. But I also want to talk specifically to the point that some people have been making of the cure being worse than the disease. And, you know, shouldn't we just let the disease run its course? There are going to be economic consequences to that too. A few million dead people in the U.S. is not something that is going to be shrugged off uh, by the economy. Uh, there are going to be jobs uh, that go empty. There are The healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed. It's going to collapse. We're going to lose probably a good number of healthcare workers. There are going to be massive, massive consequences. So this is not just a choice between uh, you know, public health and the economy. It's are we going to have an absolute catastrophe or can we all pull together and, and try to mitigate some of the, the bad aspects of, of the social distancing that we do need need to do right now? And that would be uh, my preference. I, I would imagine, I would hope it would be the preference of most. There I, is, I would hope so as well, Nick. Yeah, there is an absolute deluge of information out there. And... You know, sadly, uh, perhaps, I think that many of us are getting our news and our information from probably not the most reputable sources. Even I am a person who is very active on Twitter. Now, I try to be glued in and connected to particular people on Twitter, but there's a lot of information uh, on places like that and on Facebook and other places where people are spending a lot of their time socially, and they're also getting information about COVID-19 in those places. Where, as uh, an epidemiologist and a person plugged into this situation, where would you recommend people pay the closest attention to if they want to be getting information that is accurate, that is helpful, and that is going to uh, you know, create and inform the best decisions of our listeners? That is such a good question. And I'll, I'll give you a few different ideas. Um, there are some media outlets that have done a, a really outstanding job, uh, I think, with their COVID-19 coverage. Uh, the Atlantic uh, has been really, really good, uh, and all of their uh, COVID-19 related materials uh, are free. Uh, you know, places like the New York Times has done some really interesting uh, visualizations and stuff like that that really help you uh, grapple with the epidemic. Uh, there's an organization called Stat News, S-T-A-T News, uh, that does really good stuff. And Vox as well um, has been a source of some really important information. Uh, if you're on Twitter, it's definitely easy to get a lot of stuff from people who maybe don't exactly know so much what they're talking about. Uh, but I can give you some great follows who everything they put out is really reliable. Uh, there's Mark Lipsitch from Harvard. Uh, his handle is at M Lipsitch, L-I-P-S-I-T-C-H. Uh, there's Trevor Bedford. Uh, he is at T-R-V-R-B. Uh, there is Eleanor Murray, who is an epidemiologist uh, up in Boston. Her handle is at Epi, E-P-I-L-E-E-L-L-I-E. -E -E. Uh, and then there is also Carl Bergstrom. He is at C underscore T underscore Bergstrom, B-E-R-G-S-T-R-O-M. Uh, they're all excellent uh, sources. And Twitter is also uh, doing quite a bit to try and verify uh, known infectious disease uh, experts as well. So I, I applaud them for that. And I applaud the job that, uh, that a lot of the media uh, has done. There are certainly some, some sketchier outlets out there, but um, the ones that I mentioned have certainly done a, a really responsible job. They haven't overstated. They haven't understated. I have to say that Epi Ellie definitely has the best handle of the people that you shared. I mean, oh. she's, she, she's definitely playing, she's doing the, the epidemiologist stuff, but she's also playing in the Twitter world. She, she's, she's, she's playing well there. Oh, she's doing incredibly. And uh, her cartoons, she does Epi cartoons and builds these just fantastic posters uh, that explain exactly, you know, different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic and what we're asking people to do and what social distancing means. And they've been translated into well over a dozen languages. And yeah, she's, she's doing tremendous work. So throw her a follow. I couldn't, I couldn't recommend her more. Awesome. Okay, Dr. Benny, I want to thank you so much for your time, your generosity with your time and your knowledge and contributing to hopefully uh, making all of us, my listeners and myself, uh, 
better citizens and people who are going to do things that are going to be more uh, careful and, and focused towards our neighbor and, and getting to the rebuild and then ultimately the recovery stages of uh, of this pandemic. And uh, appreciate you very much and, and taking the time to be with us. Absolutely. I really appreciate you, uh, Nick, having us on. And I, I really appreciate Dr. Batazzi joining us. And just to finish up, you know, in 10 seconds, what I want your listeners to know, it's stay at home as much as you can. Go out only if it's essential. Try to keep it to once a week and wash your hands regularly and don't touch your face when you go out. And those are the main things. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Benny. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Nick. Okay. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Drs. Maria Batazzi and Drs. Zach Benny. Please give all of the recommended people a follow on Twitter that Dr. Benny outlined there. Please follow his advice for best practices as we are trying to ride out this pandemic. And please take it seriously that we all play a role in whether or not this is going to affect hundreds of thousands of people and that it will also affect how quickly we can get back to normal with how seriously we take the recommended precautions, in some cases the mandated precautions that we have been handed down. So without further ado, I will let you go. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please give me some feedback. Let me know what you thought of this podcast, if it was helpful, if it, if it gave you any sort of information that you didn't previously know and helped you calibrate your expectations, which is really the big thing it's done for me. And uh, until next time, don't forget this. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs>